scratch and smooth. Hello and welcome to SNS Online. It's no understatement that my special guest today is arguably one of the most influential musicians in the whole world, inspiring generations of future artists like John Lennon, Eric Clapton, Brian May, Mark Knopfler, and so, so many more. The word genius is banded about far too much in the crazy world of show business, but in this case it's a term that's well justified, even though my guest's natural modesty would, I'm sure, cringe at its use. Now, in his eighth decade, he shows no signs of slowing up, with a brand new album having achieved both critical and commercial success. And when it all gets boiled down, his music is the only introduction we're ever really going to need. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Hank Marvin. Extracts from Hank Marvin's work, including his brand new album, Without a Word. Well, with the miracle of ISDN via our good friends of ABC in Perth, Western Australia, it's time to introduce to you the one, the only, Mr. Hank Marvin. So, Hank Marvin, it's such an honour to have you on the show today. It really is. And I've got to say, your album, Without a Word, what a lovely, joyous set of tracks. Clearly a labour of love. I mean, was it difficult deciding which tracks to choose? Well, first of all, thanks, Nick. It's great to be uh, having a, a chat with you. Uh, getting to the album, yes, it, it was interesting choosing uh, these titles. I'll tell you why, because... With an instrumental, you, you always have to have tunes that work as instrumentals and on the guitar, particularly in my case. So I wanted to choose tunes that I've always admired. And all of these tunes are tunes that ever since I've heard them, they've really grown on me. And I thought, what a great piece of music. I mean, things like Moon River. Alfie. Peter Gunn theme, when that came out the late fit, what a great riff, you know, fantastic. A uh, little bit of like jazzy blues to it. And then things like uh, even Doctor Who. I mean, that I, I remember like, way before your time, Mick, when that came on the BBC way back in the early 60s in black and white, and that theme came on with those, you know, oscillators, the radiophonic workshop stuff. I thought, Delia Derbyshire, we must so say. So moody. Yeah, brilliant. And, uh, and, you know, having always liked I thought, I wonder if that will work on guitar. And then we found out that it does have a... a, a a verse as well as the chorus we hear mm. which saved our bacon a bit so we were able to do my son in fact did the arrangement on that and, uh, and I think it's kind of worked pretty well on the guitar because it, it is a strong strong theme
the writer of that Ron Grainer was an Australian. Absolutely. And uh, we met him way back in the 60s. He used to live in London, but he, then he moved to Portugal. He had a place out there, not far from where Cliff had his place. So we, we would see him there from time to time when we visited Portugal. He was a nice man and a very good uh, composer. comforting about those familiar tunes that that some people might not have heard in a long time and, and, and some people not at all you know y- young fans who are coming to you for the very first time yes uh with tunes that people know and love such as the ones some of the ones we mentioned i mean for example michelle the beatles michelle which i've always loved from the first time i heard that i thought what a great uh, a great tune way that's constructed for example the minors to major and things like this and it's got definitely got a french atmosphere to it and the chord structure and, totally. tune. and i thought that would work perfectly well for me which it does i'm glad to say sort of tunes you know when we hear tunes that we love even if it's not the original artist we might hear by an orchestra or or in my case instrumentally Uh, and as you said there's a certain uh, what's the word familiarity about that you know you're in your comfort zone it's a piece of music you already know but it sounds different there's something fresh about it because it's a different approach to it and I think that's also an important factor here an instrumental um, album I love the title by the way um, I think um, there's some of the songs are so timeless and familiar that you can almost imagine you're hearing the lyrics which, which makes it great for karaoke or just if you want to sing along in the shower as well <laughs> that's funny yeah well, well you know sometimes Nick when, when I'm recording a song not not every time but sometimes I write the lyrics out even though I'm playing it instrumentally I write the lyric out to get a feel of what is being said in the lyric and to see if that would help me in my expression of the of the tune, you know, give me some extra motivation, if you like, uh, and, and often it does help. It really does. It just gives you a, a feel for where the lyric was was heading and what it's trying to say. Not that I can say it on the guitar, but it does seem to help the the interpretation.
So from the opening track, a timeless Duke Ellington a classic, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, to Doctor Who, and to Moon River, one of my mum's favourite tracks, uh, played at a funeral as well. A lot of personal triggers uh, to this fan. Right. I'm sure it will with, with many people. I mean, I, Moon River, you, you mentioned that. That's always been uh, one of my favourites since I first heard... Uh, that tune way back at what, about 1961, something like that, was first to hit. Beautiful, beautiful tune, and it lends itself so well to, for me to interpret it on the guitar. And it's it, it's a very emotional tune. Even when you just listen to the tune, I always get slightly, uh, slightly sort of, uh, you know, full of emotion at certain parts of that tune. I think it's just so beautiful. So this is your 16th solo album, and the album's been released to great reviews. Are you happy with how it's been received? Very, yeah. It's had some uh, good good uh, media responses, but also the the, the, the fan uh, feedback is, is really good. Uh, a lot of them are thinking this is the best one yet, which is always good. Uh, you know, rather than say, "Oh, well, I thought the last one was better," so that, that's that's great. Yeah, you know, with any product, I'm sure you you would know this, Nick. You put it out, and you never know really how uh, the public are going to respond to it. You know, you, I might think it's good, the artist might think it's wonderful, and the public will go, "Oh, that's rubbish." So when you get that positive feedback from the media and uh, the people who buy it, that that is really oh, thank goodness for that. It's like a big sigh of relief, you know. I heard it's gone in the top ten, but I don't know if that's true or not. I just, someone just texted me this afternoon. D- darling, you're trending in England. <laughs> trending it is a thing. <laughs> Absolutely, we, you you got to get on Twitter and trend these days to be credible. <laughs> what me and Trump? You mean? <laughs> I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me. Believe me. <laughs> How did you approach rearranging these iconic tracks? Well, initially, there's uh, first of all, we choose the titles, obviously. I get it down to the, the 14 or 13 tracks plus one original. And then I, I work out the best key. We, we, we sort of, my son Ben and I did most of the arrangements on here together. We worked together, so we, we, we started trying to get a feel that will work for the numbers. Because uh, some numbers you can slightly change the feel, as you know, without losing the essence and, and, and the charm of a piece of music. You know, we, we want to respect that. And so we, we mess around, we get something we really like and think it works. And then I'll choose a key that for me sounds best on the guitar uh, to play this piece of music. And so that's they're, they're the sort of first stages. And then we start laying the tracks. And then, of course, I as this is all going on, I'm, I'm working out how to interpret the tune, play it uh, in a way that I really feel I'm saying something with it. And that takes a bit of time. You know, each number you, you agonize, well, I agonize over, oh, maybe that way. I don't think that's what, no, that's, that's, that feels it. And then when (laughs) I feel I've got it, I, I work with it.
let's name check some people who were also involved in in the album. How did you get to meet them? Obviously, your son, which is wonderful, keeping it in the family. But any other particular people you want to reference? Yeah, well, my son, I've known him really since he was born. You know, he's he's been like a son oh, to you. Absolutely. Uh, well, some of the other guys, um, for example, the drummer Ben Van der Waal, local drummer here in Perth, Western Australia. I used him on the last album. Great young drummer. He's another one I've seen around the scene since he was about 18, so about 30 years ago. Uh, then I, we've got the bass player, Roy Martin, has used him on about five or six albums. Fabulous uh, uh, electric bass player. Um, keyboard, two or three different keyboard players, wonderful local guys. Uh, one, in fact, just won uh, Best uh, Young Jazz Player of the Year. I'm not sure it was Australia-wide or just WA, but he's a real talent. A guy called Harry Mitchell. Then with percussion, it was the drummer did that. Ben did, and I did uh, most of the arrangements. Uh, Gary Taylor play, did a couple of arrangements with me and played a little bit of rhythm guitar on two or three tracks. He used to be in a band called The Herd with Peter Frampton way back in the 60s. And I've used him on several albums uh, on bass years ago, but mainly on rhythm guitar. Um, I think that's all. Oh, Nunzio Mondia did one accordion track on Michelle for me. He plays my gypsy jazz group. Wonderful musician, uh, classically trained pianist, beautiful uh, pianist, but a, a magical accordion player, an instrument that I never thought I'd like. And that when I hear him play it, I think, wow, yes, it is an instrument. Beautiful. I've got to say, just as a full stop to the actual album, you've picked the tracks so well that they sort of hold together so beautifully and have such uh, strong, powerful associations with people for so many personal reasons, as well as uh, them being amazing tracks. And I think, and particularly in today's political climate, we need to sort of uh, kick our shoes off and just uh, be happy. And uh, it's a happy album. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yes, I think it's a happy album. Uh, it's got um, a good bit of a variety in the choice of, of the, the, the tunes, but all solid, great pieces of music. And, I, and I, on the whole, I'm really pleased the way we've interpreted them. I think we've, we've done them justice. Uh, well, I hope we have anyway. And we have, as I said, we've, we've really shown respect for the pieces of music. And, and uh, to me, Nick, a, a great tune Let's say Moon River, for example, is a great tune. I don't want to destroy that. You know, you can interpret it, but I, I will never write a better tune than that. So I want, <laughs> I want to express it, you know. It's clearly done with, with a great deal of respect. Going back through those years, uh, winding it back a little bit to those early salad days, uh, what was life like growing up and how did you get inspired to perform in the first place? Uh, well, I grew up in the northeast of England in, in Newcastle upon Tyne and working class family, you know, times were very hard post war, you know, rationing, etc., etc., etc. So they, they were not great days for a lot of people. But however, as, as, as a child, I was very happy. Um, I knew nothing else. You know, this, this was life as we knew it. We played football in the back lane, cricket, other games. Uh, we could run around the park without fear of, of, of the things that parents are afraid of these days, letting their children out of their sight. That didn't seem to really occur much in those days. Maybe it did, but no one talked about it. I don't know. Mm. But uh, we had a great, great childhood. Uh, fairly, in those days, Nick, people made their own music uh, more often than not. You know, that we had a piano in the house. My mum played a bit. My cousin who lived downstairs, w was, was quite a sort of boogie-woogie player, which I loved. 
and party time you know the the the, the rug would get rolled back the piano would come out people would play and sing and that seemed to be the way people uh, made music uh, and when I was about 13, 14, I really started to uh, get an interest in music I was hearing on the radio, and particularly like newly um, uh, folk blues, uh, people like Lead Belly, Big Bro Brunsey, Sonny Terry Brown and McGee, and, and then uh, uh, New Orleans jazz, you know, Louis Armstrong, uh, George Lewis, Sidney uh, Bechet, these sort of people. Uh, and then the big bands like uh, Glenn Miller, um, Benny Goodman, and I, I loved all that stuff. And then uh, I, I formed a skiffle group, at school with a bunch of friends. We <laughs> we used to walk around on a Friday night trying to find a, a youth club. And if we found one, I would, <clears throat> I would go inside, if, if the club's open, of course, and I'd ask if we could play. And usually I said, yeah, great, because skiffle was a big thing then. We'd Absolutely come in and play for it about, was. Oh, huge. And play for about 25 minutes. And we must have been dreadful, but they used to give us a cup <laughs> of tea and a biscuit. And we thought that was fantastic, you know. And then, uh, a, then a little—I was then, by the way, playing banjo. I, I'd bought a banjo from a schoolmaster for two pounds ten, and I still have that banjo. Um, oh, but being, but I, I don't play it now. But um, I, I also started playing in a couple of triad jazz bands and and singing jazz vocals. And one of them—can you imagine a fifteen-year-old singing jazz vocals? You know, all the maturity of life. <laughs> experiences <laughs> you can put into the songs anyway then then i uh, i borrowed a guitar from a friend started learning a few chords then on my 16th birthday my dad bought me my own guitar and then i used to really put some time in practicing and at school one day i went to rutherford grammar school i saw a bunch of guys just before we went to class in the morning gathered around a boy and i saw sticking up above their heads what looked like the end of the neck the headstock of a guitar and i thought wow and i went over to have a look and i saw this guy with his guitar and it was the most amazing instrument nick it was a uh, a metal bodied guitar like a dobro or a national guitar which i'd never seen before i thought wow that's amazing and i had a chat to him and it turned out to be a, a bruce welsh and he was in a skiffle group called the railroaders who actually got money for playing and he heard me play and said, look, I, we, we could do with someone who can play solos and can sing, you know, harmonies and things. Will you join the band? So I joined their band, started getting a bit of money for what we were, uh, what we were doing. And, and unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, we both stopped uh, doing schoolwork, such as homework, et cetera, et cetera. And got, you know, we, we were doing so much live work and getting to bed late and everything. And ultimately, we left school before. We took our O-levels, much to the delight of the headmaster. He thought we'd pull down his averages, you know. <laughs> so anyway, and we came to London at the age of 16, April 1958, went to London uh, to take part in the finals of a talent competition with our skiffle group. We came third. The group broke up that night, and Bruce and I were determined to stay in London and try to make it in the music business. But as you can see, we failed. <laughs> You're listening to SNS Online with my very special guest, Hank Marvin. And if you want to comment on this or any other show, then why not like our Facebook page, SNS Online, or Twitter, also SNS Online, at Scratch and Tweet. There's also an email address, snsonlineshow at gmail.com. All our shows are free and downloadable by searching on SoundCloud for, wait for it, wait for it, SNS Online. I do hope you're taking all this down. Well, one of Hank Marvin's early collaborations was with skiffle band The Five Chestnuts, also featuring The Shadows' Bruce Welsh and drummer-songwriter Pete Chester, son of famous comedian Charlie. Check out A Blast of Teenage Love from 1958. Ooh, I've got chills. Teenage love is a wonderful thing Teenage love is a 
teenage love by the five chestnuts, including Hank Marvin. Did you ever play at the Cavern at all? we just done a big uh, show about six years of the Cavern nightclub. Well, funny enough, yeah, I tell you what happened. We, during 1960, Cliff and the Shadows were at the London Palladium for about six months. One girl, one boy, some grief, some joy, memories are made of Two shows a night for six months, and it was a monstrous, you know, run. And during that period, we had the hit with Apache. But we couldn't play it in the show. The, the producer wouldn't let us play it because it the show was all laid out. No, you can't play it. End of story. And then we had another hit with, with Man of Mystery. But that's when we, we got ourselves a manager, Peter Gormley, a wonderful man, sadly now no longer with us, but a wonderful man who really looked after us and then, then Cliff through our careers. And uh, he, he booked us a couple of uh, Sunday concerts during that run. Bristol Colson Hall was the first one. Leicester de Montfort was the second. And then we had five gigs booked when we finished the tour in December. Uh, sorry, the London Palladium in December. And one of those gigs was in Liverpool, and it was the Cavern. And we, oh. you know, we, we'd never played in such a place before, like this big cellar, and it was kind of weird, you know. We'd never played anywhere like that. We'd always played <laughs> in concert halls and theatres and things like that. So anyway, well, we did two sets. Sadly, it was quite funny, actually, because uh, we did the first set, and by then, uh, FBI was hitting the charts. So, you know, it was really big. <laughs> great reaction and then Jet Harris went off in the interval and got drunk I don't know why he did came back and he could barely stand up and he, he we started the second set and he he was swaying and he suddenly his body stiff as a, a rod fell forward towards the audience but the stage was quite low so it only came up about to the I don't know just above the waist of the audience and the the front row caught him and pushed him back up, and he fell back against the amplifier. And I, 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 I said, I'm sorry, Jet's not very well. <laughs> Someone shouted, he's... I won't tell yeah, you what. It's not some pee. And it was, yeah, it was a very embarrassing evening for us, and that was our memory of the cavern, and we never did those sort of venues again. <laughs> It's got to be said that in the early days, uh, before the Beatles really got big, John Lennon was quoted as saying that you guys were the best thing to listen to on the radio. Oh, I, I've never heard that, but it, 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 it clearly a man of taste. Oh, or, well, like, very yeah. or, or very gullible, I'm not sure. <laughs> and apparently the sole Harrison-Lennon writing credit in the Beatles catalogue was an instrumental Cry for a Shadow, which was a sort of a nod to you guys. Does that resonate? Yeah, I remember hearing that uh, and being quite flattered that uh, it was, uh, a, as far as I knew, a little bit of a nod to the Shaz. Oh, that's, that's really nice. Yeah, we met the guys quite a few times in the early days. Uh, Bruce and I, when we came back from uh, our first tour of, of Africa with Cliff and the Shads, we, we came back to, to, to see them uh, at number two in the charts with Please, Please Me. And we found out they were on in London. At, I think it was Walthamstow or somewhere like the Granada. They, they were like the third on the bill to Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe. Uh, so we thought, got to go and see these guys. Love this record. And we love Love Me Do. Uh, went to the show and it was half, half empty venue. No one screamed, 
But I thought they were great. They had this raw sound. They had so much enthusiasm on the stage, you know, and they were fooling around a bit, getting, trying to make the audience laugh as well, which, you know, I like that kind of thing. And we, we went back and met them afterwards. And, and then we went back to Bruce's place after the gig. Uh, and we, they played us some of the new songs that they'd written, and we played them some of ours. But I have to say, Nick, their songs were better than ours. Definitely. <laughs> well, you know what? You guys started before them. And I have to list this, uh, um, Hank. You know, the Shadows either alone or teaming up with the, the legend that is Cliff. Uh, it was 69 UK chart singles, I think, it, we, we tallied up. It's some huge amount, I know. Quite surprising, yes. The third most successful act in the UK singles charts behind Elvis and Cliff himself. And considering you and Cliff are pretty well synonymous, I would I would say that's a joint, that's joint number two. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. You were the forefront of a UK beat group boom, really. Yes, I think so. It, it had never really happened in such a big way before, you know, the success Cliff had. And it wasn't just in the UK, it was international. The only place we failed we was was North America. Uh, you know, Africa, Asia, all Europe, Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand, etc., etc. It was, was great. We just couldn't get the support of the American record company in the, in the USA to promote what we were doing and we used to get great reviews in Cashbox and Billboard on every new release and say surely this one will chart for you know but they just wouldn't promote it the the reality is when, when the Beatles records were released uh, love me do please please me uh, um, from me to you etc and then she loves you the same thing nothing happened and it was only when they released I want to hold your hand and there was that huge promotional campaign that it happened for them I'm glad to say because they <laughs> deserved it. The breath of fresh air in the music industry. And of course, once that was a hit, uh, I want to hold your hand, they re released the others and they were then hits. But the same thing initially happened with them. This wouldn't give them any promo. So it was a difficult market for, for Brits to, 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 uh, to try to conquer. I mean, your first big breakthrough hit, Apache, uh, only worked in America when it was covered by somebody else. You got to number two or something? Yeah, well, the, uh, as I said, they released ours, but wouldn't promote it. And uh, we, we know the guy, actually, Jorgen Ingman, a Danish guy. I met him a couple of times over there. Uh, he, he recorded that. Uh, he heard our version. He didn't know it was us. His record company sent it to him as uh, something you might like to consider recording. And he, he did it as a B-side, actually, uh, to a thing called Echo Boogie, which he'd written. But his record company, the American company he was with, said, no, 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 this is a hit record. The, the, the one by the shadows has been a hit everywhere else, but his, their company's not promoting it. We're going to push this. We think it's a hit. They did, and he, and he had this huge hit in America with it, which, you know, sadly could have been something we had there. But, hey... It's in the past, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to have had the success everywhere else, so who, who's complaining?
classic Apache by The Shadows, widely regarded as the best instrumental track in history. Well, it's time now to take a short Hank Barbin-related interlude and light a candle to the shadow's brief but fabulous flirtation with the silver screen in 1961 and 1963, respectively. Along with Cliff Richard and a stellar cast of acting stalwarts from the period, The Young Ones and Summer Holiday were two movies that both acted as an extended video for their hits and gave the audience two fun and occasionally screwball romps, both in the UK and around Europe. They attracted legions of fans, young and old alike, both reaching number two at the British box office. Tracking America was more tricky, Kel surprise, particularly with Summer Holiday, that was released just two days after the assassination of President Kennedy. Undeniably, though, they're both great feel-good movies with some awesome music, and if you're a true fan of Hank and the Gang, these should be sitting in your DVD cabinet at home. Just saying. So, while well, Hank rustles out one of his legendary fry-ups with Cliff and Eunice Stubbs in the back of a certain number nine bus, let's check out how these iconic movies were sold to us back in those swing-your-pants days. Here they are, the wonderful shadows, and that adventurous gang of young stars who made the young ones the top attraction of 1962. In the driver's seat is Cliff Richard. On the upper deck, stowaway Laurie Peters, and he's a girl. And who wouldn't stow away on such a summer holiday with such companions? Summer Holiday, the song-studded spectacular that's gloriously gay and deliciously young. Hawaiian sound that you created with the guitar, that iconic sort of sound. How did you, how did you work that out? It, did it just evolve in the studio? Yeah, you know, I, I never really thought of it as being Hawaiian until uh, many years ago. I met, um, uh, I'm just trying to think of the guy. He he did a session for me on on steel guitar, on an album I was producing for. Funny if would you believe Des O'Connor. Yay. And uh, I wanted to steal guitar on a track. Uh, we did we did some very much different material from what he was doing at the time, and uh, anyway, that's another story. But the the steel guitar player said, "Ah, oh, he said, you know, I've always loved your stuff because he said you always remind me of a steel guitar player." And I, I I'd never really thought about it to be honest. And I thought, "Oh, really? That's interesting." But when we were doing you know the early rock stuff, I mean, I never, I never thought in those terms. But the sound. Nick, in answer to your question, how that came about was, I think, to me, probably three main components. One was when Cliff bought me uh, the Stratocaster in 1959, got the red strap with a whammy bar. And I started using the whammy bar to... Uh, I love the idea of making guitar sing like a voice. Mm. And one way you can do that is move the whammy bar on the notes, and it gives a bit of vibrato, like a voice or a sax player. <laughs> Also, I found with with the heavy strings on the strap, which we had hugely heavy strings then, I could it would help me bend by as I pushed up with the left hand, I could pull up with a whammy bar, which pull the string higher up and help me bend notes, and I could give it a good shake, and I could uh, hit a note and bend the note down, it, just do little expressive things that a voice might do. I really enjoyed doing that, and then I got the Vox amplifier, and I loved the combination of sound with the Strat and the Vox. And the third component was uh, was a little device that Joe Brown uh, showed me in 1959. Um, we, we, we went to um, a TV studio in, in Manchester at the invitation of Jack Good because he had um, Gene Vincent performing on the show, and he knew we you know, loved all that early uh -huh. stuff with Gene Vincent. We were appearing down the road in, in uh, Liverpool, so we drove through to Manchester. Uh, we went to the studio, met Gene Vincent, and Joe Brown, who was on the show, Boy Meets Girl, I think it was, he pulled me to one side and said, hey, I've got something here you might, you might like. And he, he, he said, try this out, gave me his guitar, and he, I played it. And I could hear this rock and roll echo that you heard on the early rock records, like Elvis records and things like this. And I thought, wow, what's that? It was a little device called an echo box that uh, was being marketed by Vox. 
Joe said, I don't really like it. He said, I like the sort of dry sound. And uh, I always told him his guitar sounded like a plank, you know. <laughs> And this. Anyway, when I got back to London, I got this echo unit and loved it. First of all, it gave me that rock and roll sound on stage, which you could normally only get on record. Mm. Secondly, I discovered it had all these multi-head echoes, and it was one of those that I used on Apache. It just seemed to suit the, 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 the tune and the mood of Apache so much. And so I, I started using my, this echo on all the numbers, and that became that sort of signature sound. Uh, in fact, one, one guitarist referred to me as the godfather of delay. Delay, delay. What's that trick? Um, I think my brother used to do it when he put um, a half glass of water by the guitar when you're playing. Does that add? Have you ever experimented like that? No, the only time I've done that is when I've been drinking it. I don't know about any. <laughs> I think it adds some extra reverb. Sound. Where, where did he put the the the, 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 the water exactly? I'm trying, I'm trying to think, because obviously he's going to need three hands, isn't he? It was a long time ago, but I remember he had a, a, a small glass of water, half full, which he sort of rubbed up and down the keys as he was playing it. So I guess he was... Uh, he's, not, he's not using it as a slide, was he? Like a guitar slide? Poss yeah, possibly. Maybe the water, the water would give it a bit of extra weight, and maybe he's just sliding the glass... Uh, up and down the neck as you would a slide, and obviously he'd pick with his right hand and slide with the left. Yeah, that that might be what he was doing. Yes, I I've only I've never used a, a glass slide. I've used normal slides, but you know brass and and metal it, and so it, forth. It could get quite messy, really. <laughs> Very, the water and electricity don't mix. Scratch and sniff. Online with Nick Randall. So you've been known as the wizard with your finger plucking. I mean, that's uh, you know you you have an awful lot of uh, respects from your peers, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, look, it's it's very flattering to uh, hear uh, comments like that. Obviously, um, I mean, I, I admire so many different guitar players, the the ones that originally influenced me, people I've heard down through the years, uh, and a lot of the guys who are around on the scene now, and and some of the ones who. You know, not far off my age. I'm some of the older ones: Jeff Beck, Brian May, Eric Clapton, of course. Some of these people, obviously, you work with Mark Knopfler. You mentioned Brian May, Roger Daltrey, Jean-Michel Jarre, uh, Richard Hawley. I mean, talk us through some highlights. Also, writing and producing for other artists. Yeah. Oh, it's it's. Been quite an interesting uh, road having the opportunity to work. I, I remember uh, in 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 80, 1885, a bit before <laughs> my time, but I think 1985 is more like it when uh, Dire Straits had the Brothers in Arms tour. All I wanted was a red electric guitar, and the only reason I wanted a red electric guitar was because it was uh, the sound made by one of my all-time favourite guitar players. And I still wish he could get a guitar to sound the way he gets it to, to sound. And he actually recorded this tune, so he knows it. Uh, so here he is, one of the all-time favorites, the man himself, Hank B. Marvin. And Mark invited me to come along and play two numbers on the show with them. He wanted me to play Local Hero, because we as the Shadows had made a record of that, but obviously it was going to be his version. And he wanted me to play um, one of the Shadows hits, Atlantis, which is one of his, one of his favourites of our, of our hits. As it turned out, on the first day with the sound check, they had some serious sound problems, and they ran out of time, and the only number we could do was um, Local Hero. Uh, and he apologized profusely, but we simply didn't have time to rehearse it with the band and everything. So so I did almost every night of, of the London gigs at both um, Wembley Arena and Hammersmith uh, Odeon, I think it was in, or it might have been Apollo, but I think it might have still been the Odeon. And I did all it, and it was great. I came on as the last number. He gave me this wonderful sort of build-up, great audience response. I did the number with him, and he, you know, sort of gave me a big round of applause. And so they've 
worked hard for about two and a half hours. I come on, play for three minutes, get all this applause. Fantastic. That's what I like. listening to Hank Marvin on SNS Online and don't forget his brand new album Without a Word is available now. Also, you can follow his official Facebook page Hank Marvin Music Official. And now, 5 4 3 2 1 Thunderbirds are go. Let's just talk about a few little oddities. You were a Thunderbirds puppet in the Thunderbirds film, weren't you? How do you feel about that? I, I still am, yes. I still <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen me walk. No, seriously, uh, that, that was fun. You know, obviously Thunderbirds were huge. I remember my kids loving to watch it. And when they invited us to, as it were, be part of that by having the puppets and recording some music to go with it, I thought, what a, what a great thing. You know, it was something that uh, we, we were all fans of at the time, particularly the, the, the children. And so it was a, a really uh, very enjoyable thing to be part of it. They were nice people to work with. Wow, what a terrific group. Yes, they always play at the Swinging Star. You see, they're way out. In fact, the, the big guitar, Nick, that they used in one of the scenes, they had this huge, I think it was hanging from the ceiling or from the moon or something, this yeah. big acoustic guitar. That, uh, when it was finished, I said, what are you doing with all this stuff? They said, oh, I'll just be scrapped. And I said, can I have the guitar? They said, yeah. So I had it picked up in a van, brought back and put it in the garden. It was this huge thing about, I don't know, about 15 feet long or something, <laughs> big acoustic guitar. But, of course, me being thick as a brick, didn't realize it was never designed to be outdoors. And, of course, within a few months with the rain on it, it, it slowly started to come apart. Ping, <laughs> ping, bits fell off. And it was only designed for, to have, a, one, a very short life indoors. So outdoors, it just, and eventually, sadly, I had to do what they were going to do, bin it. Well, that's props for you, isn't it? Let's take a listen to the track you recorded, especially for that film. Sometimes I feel you are cheating me then you kiss me and my mind is free but then i think i should let you know that i got friends so baby listen to me a shooting star will shoot you and mars will go to war the man in the moon will jump on you if you don't love me no from 1966 for Shadows, singing on Thunderbirds Are Go. the Eurovision Song Contest. You were involved in that as well. Number nine, you got to it, 1975, Let uh, Me Be The One. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was a fun experience, uh, Nick, a, a very fun experience. It came about because what had happened, uh, a, a BBC TV producer sadly 
died very suddenly with a, a, a brain aneurysm or tumor, one of the two, and uh, they wanted to put on a big benefit for his family, and we were involved in that. And Billy Cotton Jr., who's then head of Light Entertainment, saw the, sh the, the show, and he came around, well, he, I was in the studio with the guys, so we were recording an album, and uh, I had a call from our manager, Peter Gormley, and he said, look, uh, I've had a call from Billy Cotton Jr. He has asked, would you, the shadows, that is, not Cliff and the shadows, but the shadows, consider doing the Eurovision Song Contest. And I thought, oh, really? <laughs> and uh, Peter said, look, he said, have a think on it. He said, I don't want to run it before the guys. I'm running before you first. And if you like the idea, you maybe ask, go and ask the rest of the guys. So I, he said, think about it this way. You'll probably get a hit record out, out of it, which can't be a bad thing. So uh, anyway, I thought, well, maybe he's right. So I spoke to the guys. We had a bit of a discussion and we all thought, oh, well, let's give it a whirl. So we agreed. And then that was it. We did the whole business. And uh, I remember distinctly the night of the show in Stockholm, uh, Billy Cotton poked his head around the dressing room door just before the show started and said, have a great show, guys, but remember, do not win. <laughs> what? And he said, because if you do, we have to put the show on and it costs an arm and a leg. <laughs> so uh, oh, I, I'd like to funny. think he was joking, but anyway, we, we, we got on. And, you know, I felt really sorry for Bruce because we just got set in our positions. Uh, the guy put the microphone on the stand in front of Bruce, and as he walked away... Just as the guys announced the mic, he hadn't put it in the, the cradle properly. Oh. The microphone fell off, hit the ground. Bruce had to pick it up, ram it in there, and just in time for us to start. <laughs> so it was a little fraud, uh, and then uh, Bruce forgot the, the, the words. I think he sang the same verse twice. Oh, bless him. But, but uh, whatever, it was understandable. <laughs> but it, look, it got a great... You know, the, the, the interesting thing was backstage was not at all what we expected. We thought it would be a bit kind of everyone looking at one another rather suspiciously, mm. a bit of bitchiness, you know, because everyone's in this competition. <laughs> but I tell you what, it was a wonderfully uplifting atmosphere. Uh, everyone was just happy to be there and enjoying the experience. And I was quite impressed by that sort of atmosphere. I really was. You know, everyone was just wishing everyone was have a good time, just loving it all. Oh, Loving it all, wonderful. and it was a, an, yeah, an interesting composite, uh, experience, yes. Sounds very inclusive. Let me be the one who's loving you tonight. 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 How do you feel about uh, being a Cockney rhyming slang for uh, for starting? It doesn't get more immortal than that, does it? Well, that's when I knew I'd made it, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it used to be a, sh a, a, a mu it, as far as I know, it started off with musicians saying that. That's when it first came to my attention. Someone said, do you know all the musos are saying, oh, I feel really angry, Marvin, uh, when I'm hungry, etc." And then it clearly spread from the, the musos into the general populace and became... Uh, <laughs> and I tell you, the interesting thing is when I've had friends from here in Australia go to the UK, the thing that impressed them most is when they hear people say, oh, I'm really Hank Marvin. They think that's wonderful. And it just shows you the little things can please people so much. Yep, yep, rabbit, yep, 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 rabbit, rabbit, bunny, jabber, rabbit, yep, rabbit, rabbit, bunny, rabbit, jabber, jabber, rabbit, rabbit, yep, yep, rabbit, rabbit, bunny, bunny, yep, jabber, rabbit. Why did you move to Australia and do you miss the UK? Yeah, we we just, we wanted to get away from uh, from the cold. I can't, I can't handle the cold and the, and, and the I, I get very, I have a thing called Raynaud syndrome, which means you get cold extremities when the temperature drops, particularly my hands. And I I used to get really really cold hands, like I've been in a fridge or somewhere in the winter, and it was always a bit of a problem. So it's best for me in a warmer climate. And uh, and one of the other things was too. We we were in fact building a house in in Menorca, but then we found out there were no English speaking schools for the two younger kids. So we we had to rethink that. We sold that place, and I said to my wife Carol, I said, Hey, what about Australia? They can almost speak English over there, which is true. They almost can. And uh, we decided to try Australia. We thought, Look, if it doesn't work, give it a couple of years. But we've been here 31 years. And we've we've loved it. Yeah, it's been, oh. been a great place to live.
Now, I know you were um, going to be given a, a, an OBE in 2004, but you actually decided that you wanted to make a, a point of, of not accepting that. Was I mean, it, that was just personal reasons, or is there anything you felt you wanted to make a statement about there? Oh, no, it wasn't making a statement uh, at all, Nick. It was just, I just declined for personal reasons. I, I was sure. quite happy being just dismissed uh, no letters after my name. Oh. Uh, although some people have said the real reason is I'm holding out for a lordship. <laughs> Oh, but I used to, I you used should to, get funny, one, man. You, know, you should get one. It's funny, Cliff's Cliff's uh, person, his personal assistant, Roger, has been with him for years on and off. Where you know, he used to always Sir Cliff, and he and he always said to me, he called me Lord. He said, but Hank, he said, I'll call you Lord. <laughs> <laughs> just just a bit of a while. We used to have a bit of fun. Look, I'm happy being being playing old Hank. Oh, no bless you, mate. Now, I know you've dealt with both triumph and tragedy over the years. And with all the attacks in London uh, and the, the way it's trying to impact on our lives, I mean, what's your basic sort of life philosophy that's kept you going through thick and thin? Well, I guess uh, my thoughts have changed uh, over the years in, di- in different ways. But sure. I think all of us, is, is the way the British public uh, have have shown in the last week or so the way they've you know they've got back into their daily is is that life continues you've got to try to continue we we go through tra- it could be personal tragedies that, that some people have faced in in the last couple of weeks in the uk it could be a tragedy such as those i've just mentioned which in fact are not only the, the immediate family and friends but everyone feels it to a degree you know we all feel that it brings tears to our eyes and but we have to get on with our lives we have to continue with we have maybe other family members we have to consider and so you've got to keep moving forward you never forget those people but you you keep moving forward say that we give all our guests a celebrity goodie bag now um, the fact that you're in Australia has not stopped us and so there's a bottle of champagne that, that um, uh, flew from a special carrier all the way from UK that's in a fridge next door to you so make sure you get that on the way out that's from us oh, that is amazing that's amazing thank you so much Nick I- I'll drink it on the way down the stairs no not really <laughs> <laughs> listen Hank Martin. I might fall down the stairs oh bless you listen thank you so much oh I'm, thank you for your time Nick I really appreciate oh. it and all the best to you some good questions there, Nick. go to the legendary and utterly delightful Hank Marvin. We've added nods to Sean, Tony and the gang at ABC Radio in Perth. I'm Nick Randall. Goodbye. Well, we're not quite done yet. Take a listen to this. Scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff? Scratch and sniff! I didn't know I was agreeing to that. (laughs)
<laughs> I thought those days were over. Well, I really enjoy working in small theatres. I don't like the huge, spectacular shows. You know, I quite like to see the audience. The whites of their eyes. I, yeah, not quite, <laughs> not quite. I'm glad I'm not Emily Dickinson. What a miserable life led she. She didn't have Cadbury's dairy milk and nobody came for tea. My father said... Dentistry would be a very useful uh, career for you. You can use it any country in the world, and as a Jew, you might be thrown out any time. Still, it remains in me, that, that possibility. I think all good actors are trying to shine a light on what it means to be human, mm. you know, and to look at human behaviour and, and to look at contradiction. And this is what and David Bowie saw this. Is this true? David Bowie saw this and then uh, wanted you to make a documentary about him. Yes, he asked me if I'd like to meet up and would I, he liked what he saw. And I mean, thought, what a compliment. Yeah, it, it kind of was. Maybe Fantastic. it was a rash judgment to make. <laughs> and this woman came up to me she said, Now tell me, have you made any movies? And I said, well, no, I haven't been to Betty Ford yet. Well, if I could have gone through that floor. <laughs> and somebody came pounding across the beach at me. I thought, oh, no, not here, not now. Leave me running towards me, running towards me. And I... And they ran straight past me. (laughs) (laughs) By hook or by crook, I ended up meeting them in their hotel. The words breaking in are so vulgar. For a 16-year-old Beatlemaniac (laughs) to spend eight days with John and Yoko, I still don't believe it. And then I was with Douglas Mm. uh, Adams. I will always remember Douglas's immortal words. She can't sing, she can't dance, she can't act. What's the good of her? (laughs) And for some reason, I was insulted. And then the door opened, and I went, Blimey, you're Shelley Winters. And she said, and who are you? And I said, I'm Derry Foles. And she put her tongue right down my throat. (laughs) I never saw her again the rest of the evening. Are you enjoying now far more than you were enjoying the height of your success? No. Because at the height of my success, I was on private jets and limousines and I wouldn't be stuck in a pub with the likes of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's charming, that is. And Britt Eklund turned and gave me a smile such as you have never seen. And I got this wonderful, utter, total attention until she realised I was absolutely no use to her whatsoever and it was all turned off as though the light was turned. Oh, no! It did make me laugh. And also by the Scotsman, uh, apparently you are tender, frightened and convincing. I mean, it's working for me. (laughs) (laughs) I've made Sandy Walsh blush, but in in a good way. It was for me, being in the supermarket in Accrington, and my elderly lady is coming up to me and saying, when are you and Marie getting married? And me saying, well, we're not allowed to because Hayley's transgender and, and them going, never mind that, they should be together. And that's the way to change the world. I'd say about yeah. this film is it's perfect to take someone on a date to because you don't have to at, talk to them. Yeah. Did you do the old yawn, arms around the back, <laughs> creeping down the front? It was very I'm, tempting. I'm doing a bit. <laughs> Sliding the bra out of the top, yeah. <laughs> It's an art to that. I interviewed on the same day Idi Amin and Harold Pinto. Difficult for me to say who was most difficult and intimidating of <laughs> the two of them. Well, I mean, were you in the same room as these people? I was in the same room as Harold Pinto. I oh. wasn't necessarily in, but I, I collected them. That's probably the best put choice together to. as a, Yeah, Harold always was, but we became good friends over the years, yeah. and I didn't continue my relationship with Idi Amin, I can tell you that. <laughs> And I had a terrible problem because my Hamlet kept treading on my very pointy-toe shoes, you see. So I had to keep trying to leave the stage. But, of course, I couldn't because he was on the foot. And it was written as this sort of very camp thing. I actually knew a couple of people that auditioned for it. And they said, oh, it's this very sort of camp actory type. Mm. I thought, well, I could do that. But it said, Len is tall. And uh, Mark Gator sent me an email and said, will you give me a ring? And I thought, he's not doing that to tell me I've got it. Uh, He's just being nice because he is the nicest man in the world. And he said, look... We loved what you did, but... And I said, you've gone for somebody tall, haven't you? And he went, yeah. I could never get an agent for years because of my disability, so I had to be my own, which was good for me, actually, because it taught me a lot of discipline. And so I'm negotiating the right fee, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not as good on that one. More about getting the role. Now, what makes this film interesting is that it's actually really the story about two men, because J. Edgar Hoover, for so all of the... <laughs> <laughs> Look, Nick, there's not much man-on-man action in this uh, movie. But yeah, what it is, okay, oh is a sort of story Just about... Just getting very intense here, right? <laughs> go on, go on. It's a story about... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, 
We haven't done this readers for a couple of months. <laughs> anyway, go on. Okay. Yes, this better be good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, J. Edgar Hoover, famously, was he gay? And I just think, actually, that if you don't have older actors and older actresses, you're not really getting a view of a balanced society. How much can you tell us about Mary Poppins and uh, can you succumb to tickling or bribery? Um, neither, because otherwise I'll just get a huge <laughs> smack bottom from Disney. Um, uh, uh, I can only tell you that it's going to be great. <laughs> and there are amazing people in it. And if you, if you know. know who's in Meryl it, Street, I mean, Meryl Street, Emily Street, and uh, Emily and Colin Firth. And, Meryl Streep's a bit overrated, I think. <laughs> oh, apparently. Sad! Exclamation mark. And then there was a guy who was supposed to shout something from the wings, and he didn't come on. And I, very oh. quick thinking, because I've got a very deep voice, I rushed off to do this old character who actually was still in the toilet. Okay. And I went off and I went, and the line was, Give me some light. And then I ran back on as Ophelia. <laughs> I've made up for it. I, yeah. I've spent many, many years since making amazing commercials, teaching people how to make sure that they don't get infected with STIs. Oh, right. That's so lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm the voice of chlamydia. So the review came in the next day. The first Ophelia to start out mad and go slowly sane. My simple mantra is... Never accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. No, I love it. Carol Decker on Scratch and Sniff with a goodie bag. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And uh, thank you for, for picking up on so many things that I'd, I'd actually forgotten about. Did Katie get all this? Oh, yes, she got all this, yeah. No, wonderful. Tell you, Nick, it's been a total pleasure. I should get highly drunk. Thank you very much. What an enjoyable interview.